Well, some of you know this, and some of you are going to say, oh, not this again. But one of my favorite movies of all time, if not my favorite movie, is, is Braveheart. And I know some of the ladies are going, oh, geez, those guys are always talking about war movies, gory movies, and so forth. But um, there is something that war movies do to connect to guys, most guys, that um, Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants or Driving Miss Daisy doesn't do, or Fried Green Tomatoes. It's just, you know, we watch those as men primarily as a service of love to our wives. We want to watch um, Sleepless in Seattle with our wives. But there's something that connects with a guy about watching sacrifice and fight for freedom. And for those of you who haven't seen the movie or read the book, you can read the book and not and bypass all the, the uh, uh, middle-aged butchery that happens on the, on, the, on the battlefield. But the particular movie is about, and the story is about, William Wallace, played by uh, Mel Gibson, who is a freedom fighter for the Scots. And they are fighting for their freedom from the tyranny of this, this pagan, ruthless English king. And William Wallace is a commoner who, as a result of having his wife's throat slashed by those Roman, uh, Roman by those English authorities, um, basically goes on the warpath to liberate his people. And there's this part in the movie after the first major battle scene. The first major battle scene, I think, was on the, on the battlefield of Stirling. And William Wallace leads the charge. They win the day. They defeat the northern armies of, of England. And, um, and William Wallace and his right-hand men are brought into the chambers of the nobles of the Scots. And there they knight him, and they, 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 they recognize him, and they, they say, you are now the protector of Scotland. And so William Wallace stands up with his men after being knighted, and immediately these nobles of the Scottish clans begin quibbling and fighting over who has rightful succession to the Scottish throne. And William Wallace in the movie one of my favorite scenes, he, he, he walks out with his right-hand men in disgust of the fact that they're quibbling and, and wrangling over who's going to lead the people. And at one point, all of this quibbling is going on, one of the nobles stops and says, William Wallace, where are you going? And everybody hushes. And one of my favorite lines in the whole movie is when William Wallace, he turns around, it's Mel Gibson, so it's played perfectly. He says, you think that the people of this country exist to provide you with position. I think that your position exists to provide these people with freedom. And I go make sure that they have it. I love that line. You think that your, these people exist to provide you with position. That is, exploiting people for their own power and gain. But he says, no, I think your position exists to, so that you might secure freedom for your people. What's amazing about that line, just it, can, it popped out in the whole movie, it's one of those lines you just can't forget, is that he gets the purpose of authority and power. He gets what it's about, what it's supposed to be about. Abraham Lincoln would say something similar to that in the uh, Gettysburg Address when he said that government should be for the people. Remember that? Now, not every government structure in the world is by the people and of the people, but it should be. For the people. That's a philosophy that's made this country a great country. It still is a great country because our government still attempts to be for the, the benefit of the people. It's why it's a blessing to live here, not a curse. But it's not just a philosophy. It's not just a theory. It is the divine mandate of government. The divine mandate that a government be for the people. And it goes back 
to the Apostle Paul and actually goes back before him, but he's the one who articulates the purpose of power and authority perhaps clearer than anybody else in all of Scripture. And what he's going to tell us is that the divine purpose of all of the governing structures, governing structures over us that have power over us is essentially this, that they exist to promote the well-being and the good of the people that it serves, and it is intended to punish evil. That's the purpose of government. Now, if you weren't here last week, it's probably good that I connect you now to what was said last week. And that is the overarching purpose of these seven verses, uh, Romans 13, 1 through 7, the overarching purpose, the overarching aim is to get us as God's people to willingly and gladly submit ourselves to the authorities He has placed over us. That is the main intent of these seven verses. And if I can underscore, when he says to submit, that's not simply to get it in our heads, the theory in our heads, or understand Paul's view. If you simply come out of here with an education of Romans 13, 1 through 7, then you haven't gotten it because the intent is for us to do something. That's The word submit is a do word. It is a word requiring our actions and attitudes do something in relationship to these authorities. So he intends on us getting it. If we leave here no different and we're not gladly and willingly submitting to the ones the Lord has placed over us, then we don't get the truth. That's, that's, that's the point. So that's the overarching aim, glad and willing submission. And then to... To give us three motivators, he basically grounds it in three reasons. And we looked at the first one last week. And that is that we humbly submit because, according to Paul, there is no authority except that which has been established by God. And the authorities that exist have been established by him. There's nobody who, who, who exercises a shred of authority without his divine establishment. So we submit to the authorities over us because of our deeper commitment to submit to the God who created it. So that's reason number one, that God has established it. But then there are two other reasons which we look at tonight that um, underscore why it's important for us as believers, as followers of Christ, to submit ourselves to the authorities over us with the qualifications that were made last week, willingly and gladly. And one of those has to do with what I just stated, and that is the purpose. He outlines the clear purpose of why God established government, why he established authorities over us. And that is that they would promote the good and punish the evil. Um, that's how it's put. It's found in verses 3 and 4. Let's read this together. Actually, let's back up to verse 1 to get context again. Where he says, Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God, and consequently he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. And here's reason number two, verse three. Four, it's another because, rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an angel of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of, of conscience. So Paul lays out for us in 3 and 4, reason number 2, namely, the government has been established by God for a specific purpose, 
And that purpose has two facets or aspects to it. One is the punishment of evil, and the second is the promotion of what is good. You can see the punishment of evil. That, by the way, is two sides of the same coin. The punishment of evil you can see in the uh, certain words and phrases here in verse 3 when he says, Rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. In other words, they should be terrifying for those who disobey the law and hurt people. Um, you see it again in verse 4 in the middle when he says, if, you're, if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing, which at very least is a symbol of punishment, if not what I believe to be a symbol of execution, life, um, or, or death. And then closes, his, close it, is it, closes it out at the end of verse 4 with the most explicit statement of all. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring, that's the purpose, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. So what Paul is telling us is authorities and structures are God's vehicles by which he manifests or pours out his wrath for crimes, for, for people who hurt one another. It's God's designed way of exacting vengeance or, or retribution. That's what it's designed to do, to punish, to carry out his wrath. It's a pretty strong word, wrath. In other words, the first and primary purpose of government is not to rehabilitate criminals, but it actually to punish them. Now, rehabilitation may indeed be a subsequent or subordinate purpose, but the main purpose is that it execute the righteous and just wrath of God on people who hurt people. It's meant to punish. You contrast that to what we are not able to do as individuals. We as individuals do not possess the authority. God has not authorized us to take vengeance on someone who hurts us or hurts society. The idea of vigilanteism is not supported in Scripture. Moreover, I should say that we as followers of Christ are actually, as individuals, called to practice the opposite, and that is love our enemies, pray for those who persecute us, and overcome evil with good. But that is not the purpose uh, that God has established government for. God has established government quite clearly to be ministers of His wrath. That's one part. Ministers of punishment. That's clearly what it says right here. That's what it's meant for. But there's another side to it, and of course that is that... Um, but I should back up and say this, that I want you to notice, and this is the controversial part, that that wrath and that authorized punishment includes, it would seem, the wielding of deadly force or capital punishment. You have there in verse 4, and he says at the end, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. Now, some have suggested that's simply a symbol of punishment, not an instrument of death. And yet, throughout the New Testament, it is used as a symbol of death. And it was used in the Roman times as an instrument of execution for Roman citizens. So, I'm convinced that what he's speaking of here is that, that the governing authorities even have the authority to put to death, to wield deadly force, to put someone to death. Um, that, of course, means a lot for people who serve 
governing authorities. That means that there is a time when a police officer can legitimately pull a trigger and take life. He is authorized by God because he is an extension, an extension of government. That there is a time in which somebody who works in a penitentiary is authorized by God to pull the handle or inject the solution. That there is a time that is authorized by God for a general to, to call in a, a, an airstrike that will potentially kill hundreds of people. That there is a time, according to this, that government has the authority to put to death and wield the sword. Now, it should be wielded carefully and with just cause, but it seems to me that that is a legitimate, authorized use of authority that God has granted to his people. Again, the implication for us is that Christians ought to recognize that, that the authorities that are over us have been established by God for the pur pur purpose of punishing people for doing wrong in criminal activity. So we should desire to submit recognizing it's God in God's instrument as well as the desire not just to submit but to do good. He says if you want to be commended, then do good so that governing officials, people outside should see us doing good like feeding homeless people or tutoring kids who can't read, those kinds of things, and we'll be rewarded and commended. And Paul says here, if you want to be free from fear of the one over you, then do what's right. In other words, obey the laws and, and pay your taxes and show respect where respect is due. That's, the, that's part of the divine mandate for governing authorities is to punish evil, those who in particular do evil. The other half of that, of course, is the government is intended to provide or promote good as well. You see that also weaved into verses 3 and 4. You see here it says, again, rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Then do what's right, and he'll commend you. There is a sense of reward for the one who does right. The one who is law-abiding, the one who does humbly and gladly submit to the authorities God has placed over us, there is this commendation of praise. But then in verse 4, he continues, again, the most explicit, for he is God's servant to do you good. You notice the word servant is used two times in verse 4. At the end of verse 4, he's a servant of wrath. At the beginning of verse 4, he's a servant to do us good. That means not only that he does us good, but I think what he has in mind is that government is intended to provide a context in which the well-being of people is protected so that they can live in relative peace and they can prosper. That's what government is designed to do. By contrast, and I should say this too, that, that it should be a servant of God to do good to all of its people. I mean, you can make the case theologically because everyone is created in the image of God. Therefore, government, if it is to live out these divine purposes or this one purpose in two facets, it should seek the well-being and the good of all of its people regardless of its ethnicity, their ethnicities, or regardless of their religious persuasions, or, to be more timely, whether they are born or not. So if a government willingly subjugates a certain portion of its people by race, 
to be slaves, something that happened in our country, that government ceases to fully operate as God intended. Or if a government tries to exterminate a section of its people, like in Yugoslavia or in Nazi Germany, then it ceases to be fully what God intended it to be. Or when a government, tacitly or otherwise, passes laws that allow the termination of an unborn population of its people, it seems to me that it fails to fully live out what God intended, and that is to punish the evil ones and protect the innocent ones and promote the general welfare of all of its people, which is why God's people living in this particular country, especially after some of the things we've seen signed this week, ought to pause and pray fervently and work as best as we can in the ways that we can to see our country recapture its central purpose is to punish evil, protect the innocent, and promote the good. Seems to me that's part of, and that's tough to say because we love our country, but it's, it's part of the, the truth, is that God intended government to be that which punishes evil and promotes the welfare of all of its people. Now that raises an important question, a question that somebody asked me last week, which I thought it was important to answer. And a person came up to me, it was a lady, came up after second service in the Sunday morning crowd, and she asked me, she says, well, why then does God put bad leaders in office? Why, why does God allow governments to exist that exploit people, terminate people, what, massacre people? But why does God allow a Milosevic to, to live, you know, and exterminate portions of his population? Why does God allow a guy like Saddam Hussein to live and exterminate a portion of the Kurds? I mean, why does God do this? That's a difficult question to answer, isn't it? But it's a deep question. It's one that most people have because we know there's bad governments all around the world. Well, let me attempt in an answer in two ways. One... I believe what Paul has in mind here in Romans chapter 13 is the ideal government functioning as it should. In the best of all possible fallen worlds, this is how it should operate. Seeking to be for the people by punishment of evil and the promotion of the well-being and good of the people. But it is the ideal. I think it's interesting that even the Bible has a different perspective on Rome. And I told you last week that while he's writing this, he's writing to people living in the city of Rome that's dominated by pagan politicians. But the prophet Daniel, five, six hundred years before, when he was given a vision of what Rome would be like, you know what it was? It was a wild, carnivorous beast that was chewing up God's people. That's Daniel chapter 7. The Apostle John in the Revelation of John. This is a couple decades after Paul wrote this. The Apostle John sees a vision of Rome and what it does to the people of God. And he sees it as this control-hungry, consumptive, carnivorous beast that chews up God's people. So you have two perspectives in the Scripture. Ideally, a government operating according to what Paul says here is a healthy government serving its divine purpose, but it can shift and transform and become a wild beast. Both perspectives are maintained in, 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 in Scripture. 
That, of course, doesn't answer the question, so why does God put these guys in office and allow governments to tyrannize their people? Ultimately, the answer to that is, is we don't fully understand. That's just the way it is. I mean, it's bound up with the mystery of God's providence and his, his, uh, his sovereignty, which he has not revealed to us. However, we can look back in biblical history and see certain men God did put in office and realize why he did it, because he's explicit about it. For example, you have Pharaoh, an evil man who tossed a bunch of little kids and babies into the Nile, got eaten by crocodiles or drowned, a very evil man. And yet the Bible's clear, God raised him up for the specific purpose that he would show his power, that he would crush his armies, he would crush his city and show him who's boss. In the end, he raised him up to show his power. That's that's, that's, that's spoken of in, in Exodus and also Romans chapter 9. You have Saul, the very first king of Israel, also a very evil man. Without, uh, without batting an eye, he can wipe out an entire town of priests. And yet we find that God is the one who installed him. And why did he install him? As a judgment on those people. In other words, sometimes God allows or installs a bad person as a judgment on the country to which they oversee. Sometimes... A leader is judgment on the people. Or we can fast forward to Jesus' time and ask, why did God put Pilate in office? You know, to be the authority in Rome at the, just the right time. The gutless wonder who didn't have the integrity or the commitment to protect this innocent man from a mob of jealous people which he knew were jealous. The answer, of course, is God had ultimate purposes for this man's Abuse of authority, and that is to abuse it and crucify a son. That is to say, I am confident of this. I'm confident that evil governments and evil kings that have existed and do exist and will exist, they never work against God's purpose. They always play into it. In other words, though difficult to get your mind around, I trust that God has purposes in it. They do not wage war against God's purposes. God amazingly and wisely and mysteriously enough works them into his plan, which is why we can trust him. At the same time, I am confident of this that any government that continues to abuse its power and exploit people or terminate people, including the unborn, will at some point be brought down by the Lord because they have universally been brought down through biblical history. That is, God will either bring it down through catastrophe, as He did Pharaoh, He'll bring it down through revolution or through rebellion, or He'll do it through conquest. But God will, in the end, judge a power that is abusing it for its own selfish interests. So again, we come back to the fact that though we don't fully understand it, God does have a purpose for those things, ultimately that work for the good of His people. But in the end, He will bring them to justice. So here you have kind of wrapped up, that's kind of the end of that little thing, um, little question, is the purpose of government is simply this. And the health of the government is determined by how well it lives this out. That God intended it by His own sovereign hand to promote the good and well-being of all of its people 
and to punish those who do evil. That, simply put, is the purpose and one of the reasons why we as God's people must seek to submit ourselves to it because that's its purpose. If you want to go against the law, then you're going to be fearful. If you're not going to pay your full income taxes, then you're going to live in fear that the IRS is going to pull your number. If you want to live without fear, submit to the authorities that God has placed over us. That's the simple truth of it. Not only submit to it by its laws, but actually to do good, as Paul says. It should be an incentive to do good because they do, generally speaking, reward the good. So that's the second of the three purposes, or excuse me, reasons why we willingly subject and submit ourselves to the governing authorities. And there's one other, and this has taken considerably less time. That's found in verse 5. And that is for conscience sake. Verse 5, you notice he comes back to the main point and he says, Therefore it is necessary to submit to the authorities not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. That's a word and an idea that is largely underplayed in the modern church and even more um, dreadfully and catastrophically in the world in which we live, conscience. You know, even if you don't know the technical definition of a, of, a, of a conscience or you don't understand the theological understanding of the conscience, we all know what a conscience is because every one of us lives with one. It's that little flag that goes up in your mind every time you're about to do something that you know is wrong or if after you do it, you're like, oh, you know, it's a little arrow of guilt that just immediately hits the heart. You're like, ah, I don't think I should have done that. As we know it by experience, because a lot of us feel guilt all the time because we violate this thing we call the conscience. You know, I was, I was uh, talking to some of the friends that, well, let me back up and say that if any of you signed up for this thing called, thing called Facebook, do Facebook, it's a unique way on the Internet of reconnecting to all those people that you probably didn't want to know in your past, but now you put your name out there and now you get to know them. Well, I connected with guys I went to kindergarten with. And, uh, and we were talking about our stories and certain things we did, some of the funny stuff, some of the stupid stuff, but every one of these guys said, there are some people that I treated, and these guys are not Christians by any stretch of the imagination, and they all felt bad about things that they had done when they were in grade school. And I told them, I said, you know, there was a time I remember too, and there was actually more than one, lots, uh, in which there was this little kid named Tim Walters. He had a big silver tooth and frizzy hair. He was ADHD, and nobody liked him. And I remember we would pick on this kid relentlessly and um, and i knew it at the time i knew it at the time that it was wrong my friends knew it at the time that it was wrong and they never grew up going to sunday school or the church because each one of us has a conscience whether you've grown up in bible school or sunday school or not you have this thing inside you that says ah oh, that was wrong it was wrong that's what conscience is you know, I was, I was driving just this last Wednesday night in, in Sacramento, and I'm driving down 3rd Street, and I took a bunch of wrong turns, and I went to do a U-turn in a place that I wasn't supposed to do a U-turn. And if I get fired for this, I get fired for this, but this is what happened, is that my, my wife essentially all of a sudden says, Dan, you can't do a U-turn here. You know, there's no cars coming. There's, there, there, you can't make a U-turn here. So I have her voice coming at me from the passenger seat, and I have this voice inside me, this conscience saying that you shouldn't turn a U-turn in this particular place. So I have her voice and this voice telling me it's wrong. Now, I'm not sure which is worse, to have her voice telling me it's wrong or this voice telling me it's wrong. 
But I, I knew it. I knew exactly when I did that that ah, I shouldn't have done that. I mean, it, granted, it's not like murdering somebody or it's not like, you know, uh, stealing from somebody. But in this little way, I just my conscience said, that's, that's wrong. And we may not like the conscience. Actually, we might not like what it does to us, making us feel guilty all the time. But it is a gift that God has given every human being, this internal clock, this little compass, this... Um, this alarm that goes off, ding, ding, ding. And everybody has one. It's a blessed gift. And it was for Paul, if you, if you ever want to do an interesting study, study the conscience in the letters of Paul. Because it was something that guided his life. He constantly um, um, called witness to it. He says, my conscience bears me witness that I have been sincere. In other words, I stand here in purity of conscience knowing that I have not done this for the wrong reasons. The conscience was for him a very personal guide. It wasn't his only guide, the Scripture and the Holy Spirit, but it was a guide for him. Not only was it part of his life, it was part of his theology. In Romans chapter 2, he taught that the conscience is there to accuse or excuse you from doing something, and someday God is going to take that conscience, almost like that black recorder box in 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 an airplane that they dredge up from the bottom and you find out what happened, and God's going to say, your conscience accused you through your whole life. You knew it was wrong, and yet you still did it. It figures into his theology. It's also clear from 1 Corinthians 8 and 1 Corinthians 10 that it's possible for this conscience to be informed or misinformed based upon your tradition, your religion, religious past, or your upbringing. So that you can be shaped in a personal way that you feel guilty about things you shouldn't feel guilty about. And even then, what Paul says is, it's a dangerous thing to violate your conscience even if it's misinformed. So you can imagine a Jew in the first century who comes to Jesus and he's with these Gentiles and they're all eating bacon and sausage for breakfast and he's grown up his whole life thinking that it's wrong and it was wrong in a particular time in history but now through the cross of Christ everything has been cleansed and now the Christians around him are eating it. I think Paul would say, listen buddy, you just stay away from the pork. Don't violate your conscience. And those of you who can't eat the pork, don't make your brother violate his conscience because it will devastate him. That's how important the conscience was for the Apostle Paul. That we shouldn't be violating it. And the other thing that is interesting about the conscience is that one can, through repeated instances of disobedience and not listening to it, can actually cause it to dysfunction. That is, it won't, you won't hear it anymore. Paul uses the, the, the phrase in 1 Timothy 4 of someone who through repeated actions beginning to sear. You know what happens when you sear something or burn skin? It, it loses its feeling. The idea that if you don't pay attention to it over and over and over and over again pretty soon, you're going to be numb to it. I think it's still there. It's still going to be putting up flags, but you're so used to those flags going up, you don't care anymore. It's just like that alarm that goes off in the person's car down the street over and over and over. First time everybody runs out like, oh, somebody breaking into the car? But then it goes off and pretty soon nobody even notices anymore. It's the stupid alarm that goes off on the, on the car. You're not paying attention to it. You're numb to it. It doesn't even function anymore like it was supposed to, to get people's attention. You know, I had, it reminds me of, of three friends of mine <laughs> who decided to go fishing on a ski boat in the slough. And they go to this church, so they have to remain nameless. <laughs> but, but, they're driving out to their fishing spot, motoring out, and all of a sudden a little alarm goes off on, their, on the little dash of the boat. And it was an irritating alarm, right? They couldn't figure out what the alarm was going off for, so you know what they did? They disconnected it. 
They disconnected the, the, the alarm. And who knows, in my position, if I were to do that, I, I might do the stupid thing too. But what they didn't know is it was tied to the impeller of the boat. Whenever it's clogged, and that's the thing that sucks up cold water and sends it through the engine to cool the engine down. And when it's plugged, the alarm goes off. So they disconnected the alarm, and they started the boat, and they went on. No alarm, no irritating alarm. Meanwhile, the impeller's plugged up. No cold water's going through the engine to cool the engine. And so before long, you have smoke pouring out the back of the boat. And when they finally figure out what's going on, they lift that thing that covers the engine in the boat, and there's everything's melting and things are about to catch on fire. One of the brothers told me that he was on the tip of the boat ready to abandon ship. That's how bad it seemed. <laughs> now, just so you know how the story ends, they were able to control it, and it didn't blow up, and they had to humbly be towed back to dock. But that is, in a humorous way, that is the devastation that can happen when one turns off the alarm. And that is the devastation that can happen when one ignores their conscience. Conscience was important for Paul not to violate it and to live with a pure conscience. And that is such a precious, precious thing, to live without that sense of guilt. Now, you might have been forgiven of all your sins by Christ, but that doesn't mean the conscience isn't going to make you feel guilty. And I'll tell you, to ignore the conscience is a dangerous thing. And for Paul, it was a reason enough to include it here in verse 5 to say, this is one of the reasons why you shouldn't break the law. It's not worth the sting of guilt for your conscience before the Lord. But what a precious thing it is for us to maintain a pure conscience before the Lord that I, I have, I hate to bring this up again, I have paid my taxes. That I'm doing my best to live underneath the authorities God has placed under me. Not just because I'm afraid of punishment, but to maintain this pure and clean conscience before the Lord. That is a worthy motivator for us to do our best to gladly and willingly submit to the authorities that God has ordained, the authorities that have been given the authorized purpose of promoting good and judging evil, but also for the sake of a clean and pure conscience. That's why, brothers and sisters, putting it all together, why we should humbly and willingly submit our lives to the authorities over us. And so let me ask you, I guess it comes down to this. The punchline of the entire seven verses is, are you really willingly submitting yourself to the powers that God sovereignly has placed over us as unto him, as an act of worship and submission ultimately to him? Or are there areas of compromise where you know in your conscience that, ah, I've been doing this over and over again and I have desensitized myself to it? I think it'd be appropriate for us to spend a couple of moments just asking the Holy Spirit, this is what he does, that you would search me and know me and try me and show me any wicked way in me, anything that is not, that is in compromise, and lead me in the way everlasting. And by the Spirit of God and by the grace of God to seek to live willingly and submissively to the government. And I would also ask that in your prayer time, if you would not take time to pray for our government, in particular in relationship to this thing we call the sanctity of life, we need desperately to be praying that God would move the hearts of our leaders and change the culture of our people, that they see that there is an entire segment of our population that though it's not born, it's every bit human and it has the marks of the image of the invisible God. 
pray for our government. So pray about your own spiritual life as it relates to the authorities over us. But then pray for our government as well. Just cry out to the Lord, will you? And, um, and intercede on behalf of our government. Why don't you do that right now as the worship team comes?